Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, joined by the reporter who's made a career out of crossing the divide, Jessica Stone. You see, you see what I did there, Jess? How you doing? You're hilarious. <laughs> Bring it. All right. And as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and give us a shout on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. Linda Feldman is Washington Bureau Chief at the Christian Science Monitor and is their senior political and White House correspondent. She's also someone adept at crossing the divide as she worked at the Moscow News for a brief time as part of the first U.S.-Soviet journalists exchange and has since served as a journalist as the Moscow Bureau Chief for the, for the Christian Science Monitor and has even been part of a diplomatic efforts through the Dartmouth Conference. She's won numerous awards and honors for her work and was elected to the Gridiron Club, which means our guest today is pretty much a badass journalist. Yeah. <laughs> One of the best of the best. Uh, Linda Feldman, this is such an honor. Thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm great. Well, thank you for having me. This is this is a great way to, to spend an evening. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's still it's still early here, and uh, I, th- we're on separate coasts, so this is kind of cool. We're we're crossing the divide, divide as we Look speak. Look at so. you, it's the transatlantic divide. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I saw Linda that you grew up in the Boston area. Right. Yeah, I'm from Winchester, Massachusetts, and in fact, uh, here's a fun fact: I share a hometown with Mark Milley, the mm. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And um, one of the things I do for the monitor is host newsmaker breakfasts. And I, before everything shut down for the pandemic, I was hot on the trail of um, trying to get General Milley to appear at a monitor breakfast. And then of course, everything shut down. But um, so he's, we're almost the same age. And uh, as I said, we grew up in the same town. My mother still lives in Winchester. He, I think still has family there. So when we when everything springs back to life, I'm going to be back on that back on that trail trying to get Mark Milley. I know he's he's a very um, sociable guy. I'm told I have spies in the Pentagon who think he might actually do this. So wow! <laughs> Since you brought it up, could you share? You have a number of endeavors where you're bringing voices from uh, across the spectrum together including the Monitor Breakfast. I mentioned the Dartmouth Conference. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Monitor Breakfast? The Monitor Breakfast is uh, something that started in the mid-1960s. Um, and I, I wasn't the one who started it. I'm not that old. It was started by a guy named Godfrey Sperling, better known as Budge Sperling. Budge did it, to, it. He did it forever. He did it for like 35 years, way into his wow. 80s. Um, handed off to... Um, a guy named Dave Cook, and then I picked up from Dave about three years ago. Basically, what it is, it's, it's, it's the original power breakfast. So 
uh, we invite somebody, uh, a prominent, you know, a cabinet member or um, a, mem a prominent member of Congress or, you know, uh, head of the AFL-CIO, whoever, and have them come and sit around a table with a bunch of reporters. And the, the signature trait of these breakfasts is civility. So, um, so much of Washington, especially now, is just based on, on toxicity and gotcha questions and attacks. And we, we're kind of old school. I mean, we, we've, our breakfasts over the years have made a lot of news. Yeah. Uh, there was the famous crybaby incident with Newt Gingrich. Um, we had Ed Rollins who made the comments about walking around money uh, in an election that he was um, managing. Um, but those, that's on them. What happens is people, people will come to our breakfast and they'll get very relaxed and then they'll start talking. Um, this hasn't happened recently, but um, th those are sort of exceptions. The main thing is just to have a civil conversation and, and get to know these people as people. Um, you know, there is uh, in journalism, journalists and sources are in some ways and, and journalists and public figures, there's a, a, a by definition, um, an adversarial relationship. Um, we're covering them like it or not. Uh, you know, Donald Trump loved the press until until he hated us, right? I mean, Jessica knows this well. Um, <laughs> he loved us because we paid attention to him twenty four seven. Yeah. But then, but then, if somebody uh, you know unearthed something embarrassing or unflattering, then he was very unhappy with us. So, um, but the main thing with these breakfasts is just to uh, to have a conversation and and get away from sound bites and really dig in on subjects and keep it civil. That's a terrible idea. I'm, I'm, I'm vehemently opposed to, to civility. <laughs> <laughs> I would just add too that the, the times I've been there, I thought of it also as a really great opportunity for cub reporters or people that don't know other, other members of the press corps to learn from each other and yeah. to see what kinds of questions. Um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's just so many different kinds of stories that come out of these. And so you kind of watch people and their angles and you can, you, have, you can learn a lot. Plus the pastries are pretty good. Yeah. And, and another nice thing about it is that you, like I had um, a couple of years ago, I had Nancy Pelosi and, you know, if you're a small outlet, if you're like from a regional newspaper, your ability to interact with Nancy Pelosi one-on-one, -on -one, the speaker of the house is, is, it's pretty pretty slim chance that'll happen. But if you've got a group of you around a table, then everybody you know everybody can ask a question. Um, and these breakfasts start like well, I walk the guest around the table. Everybody uh, you know uh -huh. shakes hands. It's very it's a nice way to start. It sort of sets things off in in a direction of um, you know we're all we're all people. We're all human beings. I think people sometimes forget that uh, in Washington. You know we there's this kind of uh, almost play acting that goes on where you've got, you know, everybody's, everybody's enemies and they're trying to get them somehow. So see, since you bring it up, um, I, I think you're right. I think that there's this thing where there used to be an understanding where, okay, I'm wearing the politics hat on now. And, but, you know, once we get to legislating, we can be, uh, we, we can be civil and have mm -hmm. disagreements and come from different uh, positions, but you know, when I'm front of in front of the mics, I'm going to be wearing the other hat. So you understand that. But folks seem to have forgotten those roles, mm -hmm. um, and then the 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 roles that they're 
putting a certain hat on, they become the person. And it reminds me of something that Dostoevsky talked about, which mm. I want to ask you about. Um, he said <laughs> wow, that- that was uh, a nice segue, Core. Right? He yeah. said that at one, he, at one point he was talking about the arts. He said, you know, we're, we're in a stage now where uh, it used to be that art imitates life. Now we're in a place where I'm seeing that life imitates art. And this is a very loose translation of what he said. And he said, I look into the future and I think that we may get to a time where life derives its very meaning of existence from the arts. So mm. it's, it's interesting that he was, he was pretty prescient. All that as a segue to say, so you studied Russian language and literature. Were you studying Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Chekhov in the, in the original Russian? I'm so curious. So I, I studied at Middlebury College, which is famous for its language programs. And I did grind away really hard at learning Russian, but I'm not gonna claim that I read, uh, you know, Crime and Punishment or Anna Karenina in Russian. I read those in English. Uh, we did, we were uh, assigned to read shorter stories, um, you know, Chekhov, Gogol, uh, Turgenev. Uh, we read Pushkin, we read, you know, the poetry of Pushkin in Russian. Um, but no, I didn't read War and Peace in Russian. So just <laughs> I, I never told you this. Did I tell you that I was I produced um, Three Sisters and it was a really, really special piece. And, and it was a theater like, I mean, if there were 25 seats in this particular theater, but it was such a special production. Mm -hmm. um, we had uh, we had an, a, a fellow who was with Carnegie Mellon uh, studied at the Moscow Art Theater uh, through through oh, an wow. exchange. And he did an original translation of Three Sisters for us. Wow. Um, and it just so happened that the director a lot of folks don't know uh, Christian Bale's younger sister, Louise Bale, is a brilliant, brilliant person. She oh. was the director and just did this great. Um, mm. But I, I have an affinity at Chekhov and uh, some of my favorite literature is, is the Russian, um, you know, 18. Yeah. You know, that, that makes sense now that I think about it. There's a, yeah. there's a depth there that I think it would draw you in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in all seriousness, why were you drawn to that course of study at Middlebury? I... It's through Russian culture. I know as a, as a child, my parents had record albums. This is back in the day when you had vinyl record albums of Stravinsky and Tchaikovsky. And the, the mm. record albums were beautiful Russian folk art. And I, I remember, you know, as a seven-year-old sitting and staring at it and thinking it was just very um, romantic and exotic and beautiful. Mm. And um, I've always liked languages. Um, so when I arrived at Middlebury, I was deciding between Russian and Chinese, and I just felt Russian was a little more accessible. I mean, they have an alphabet. It's not pictograms like in Chinese. Um, yeah. So, and then I- Ain't no I, one learning that one easily. Just <laughs> <laughs> to that. So I, my son studied Chinese. My son speaks Thai and Chinese and Khmer. So I, that's, wow. that's his deal. I, I stick with Russian, which, you know, learning the Cyrillic alphabet isn't all that hard. It's just it's just different letters and you just learn the sounds. It takes, you know, a few days. Um, so, but it's just a beautiful language. I just love it. So you, you spent a considerable amount of time overseas, uh, stints mm -hmm. in Moscow, uh, the Middle East, uh, as well as reporting you've done at the UN and as a foreign affairs correspondent, mm -hmm. you can certainly be considered, I think, I think you had mentioned, I forgot where I saw it, globally minded in your work. Right. Even uh, with your graduate work, uh, international public policy at Johns Hopkins, how does that inform the stories that you focus on? I guess 
I look at everything, uh, I sort of imagine the, the people that I know from other countries and other cultures and what, not, not just what, 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 what would Americans want to know, but how would this make sense, say, to a friend in Russia or a friend in Thailand um, to sort of, uh, sort of draw back? I mean, the monitor likes to look at things, look at things through a very wide lens. Uh, and when I write about international topics, I feel uh, that the goal is to really draw out the humanity. I mean, the monitor does this in all of our coverage, whether it's a domestic topic or international, but um, you know, cultural differences are fascinating and wonderful and to be celebrated, but there is there are the common threads of humanity um, that draw throughout the globe. And as, as Jessica well know, knows well, that's what makes being an international reporter so wonderful is you can go to some country that might feel very exotic and unusual at first. And then the minute you start talking to people, the differences just melt away. And um, I, hope, I hope that comes through in my coverage. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, certainly the, the most recent one that, that we want to talk a great deal about. You really humanized um, everyone that you refer to, whether it was a pastor or an activist or just the, the different folks that you referenced, they came across as human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were from a wide swath of, of, you know, people that you wouldn't necessarily put together in the same story. So it was really, I thought that came across really effectively. Um, so just to expound on that a bit, how might that be different from journalists who've been strictly stateside their whole careers? Well, just in general, I, I think it's important uh, for people to understand that, that news is, is people. So the president of the United States is a human being, right? I mean, he, and it's always been a he, is on the news every day. You see their image everywhere. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that he is a human being. And it, the same is true of everybody you talk to, whether it's an academic or a homeless person or um, just, you know, some other, uh, you know, a historian, just anybody has, they bring their life experience and their perspectives to their work and to what, or whatever the story is that you're writing. And um, so when I wrote this story about politics, looking at whether politics has become a form of religion, my observation in, in surveying the articles that it had already been written on this subject was that not that they didn't include real people in them. And that religion oh, wow. is such a fund, it is just a profoundly and fundamentally human subject. And so it's, and it's fascinating. I mean, and you, uh, you know, you talk about talking about religion and politics without killing each other. I was on the verge of killing myself writing this story because it's so, I mean, there's so many angles and so many different avenues. I mean, you can, you can just go on forever. But my observation was that, they, that, they, that there weren't a lot of real people being discussed. A lot of people mm. have written about this subject through their own um, personal lens. So I mentioned Andrew Sullivan in the article. Um, he's written on this subject a number of times. He is uh, a devout Roman Catholic. He's also gay, which that creates an interesting tension right there. Um, and he, you know, so from his perspective as a 
religious person. He can't understand. He thinks everybody has to have a religion, mm-hmm. whether you even if you're an atheist, that atheism itself is a religion that any and he refers to other people. Somebody's written a, a book on the God gene so that everybody mm-hmm. that they're God size whole. The, the God-sized hole, blaze yeah. God's which I love that. It's, this yeah. is not to say that everybody consciously believes in God, but that everybody, you have to believe in something outside of yourself, that you can't just be this completely self-contained entity. Um, and uh, so I just, I mean, I feel like th- this article was about 3,000 words. I feel like I just barely scratched the surface. Yeah, and I, I want to get into that. Let me just yeah. back up and let everybody know the title of the article is called Is Politics the New Religion? It was just released this past week in the Christian Science Monitor, and mm-hmm. it's about a 12-minute read. It's worth every minute and then some um, oh, because yeah. you will want to go down the rabbit trails of all of her sources. It's very thoroughly researched. How, how long did it take you to report this out? It took me about six weeks, um, oh but that, and that wasn't like six oh. weeks full time. I mean, I had, for example, Jessica, you'll appreciate this. I had White House pool duty oh, in the middle of that in, in Wilmington. So, you know, Joe oh. Biden goes home to Wilmington a lot and our, our turn for uh, for travel pool came up. So off I went to Wilmington for uh, for a weekend in the middle of all of this. Um, and I had to I had to do, write write a few other things uh, in the meantime, so I kept having to like put it to the side mm. and let it marinate and do another story and then come back to it, which can be frustrating. I mean, there's a there's an upside and a downside to operating that way because sometimes when you let a subject sit, you just you can keep collecting string. So I you know I'm constantly reading or and my editor is sees things and she's sending me more things. And I mean, at a certain point, I almost had to tell her to stop because it can go, you know, it just, you can just sort of drown in, in, uh, you know, other articles and in people's comments or even, you know, even just watching uh, cable news people, somebody made reference to um, on Twitter, watching, uh, watching Rachel Maddow was like a holy experience. So you get on those evening shows, you've got, you know, Sean Hannity, uh, and uh, Rachel Maddow and their followers are almost like acolytes. I mean, so they inspire worship. Yeah. And, and you see that people will tweet while these while they're on the air and they'll tweet religious imagery relevant to wow. what they're talking about. So it <laughs> wow. that definitely fed. I, don't think I quite knew that piece of information. <laughs> That's pretty intense. Um, well, I, I discovered your article because you put it on Facebook with the following um, introduction, religious participation, you said, maybe the hardest story I've ever written, mm-hmm. religious participation in the U.S. has sunk dramatically since 2000, while political polarization only gets worse. Are the two connected? Mm-hmm. I refuse to say that, and I'll ask you about that in a little while, but it's easy to conclude that for some people, politics has become a quasi-religion. Um why was this the hardest you've ever written or, or maybe one of the hardest you've ever written articles? So first of all, I have no background in religious studies. I, I didn't take any religion classes in college. I don't have any back, particular background in theology. Um, so I had to, and it's such a rich topic. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I read somewhere that there are 10,000 identified religions in the world. And 
you know, understanding what they what they all. I mean, I didn't try to unpack that. In <laughs> <It> just, <laughs> I would I would definitely kill myself. But just even going through. I mean, I, there's no way you can sort of understand what it all means, and it is and it isn't even required. What was really what was hard about this article was the the temptation that I've seen by some people to draw a causal link between the decline in religious participation, which Gallup um, recently uh, measured at, uh, so involve, you know, membership in a religious congregation, whether it's a church or a mosque or a synagogue, is now um, below 50% for yeah. the first time in eight decades of polling by, by Gallup's. So in, I think it was in 1999, it was 70% of Americans belonged to some congregation, we're now at 47%. That's that's massive. That's really dramatic. Yeah. And at the same time, we've seen our politics become incredibly polarized. I've been in Washington over 30 years. And I remember, I mean, you know, you talk about um, people from the, you know, the other end, other side of the aisle, they, they can fight like cats and dogs in Congress. And then after hours, go out and have have a beer together, you know, like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. That doesn't happen anymore. So the yeah. so the temptation is to draw a causal link, but as any any anybody in social science knows, correlation is not causation. I mean, we've had um, you know past eras of tremendous upheaval in this country. We had the Civil War. Uh, we we had the civil rights upheaval of the fifties and sixties. We had you know we had assassinations. We had riots in the streets. But in in the sixties religious participation was quite high. People really did uh, go to church or, or synagogue or what have you. So I'm not sure I agree that the political upheaval that we're seeing right now is linked to a decline of, of religiosity in this country. But I, you know, I reserve the possibility that it is true. I, I just don't know how you can prove that. And this is something that I learned from talking all, to all these people for this article is that you can you can take lots and lots of polls, which will give you the what, but they don't tell you the why. You know, and I would ask, you know, it's, you always want to ask a pollster, why is this happening? And they're like, they'll give you a bunch of theories, but they they don't want to they don't want to go outside the data. They'll just say these this is what we're seeing in the data. You know, decline in belief in God. Um, I talked one of the main uh, sources for this article was a, a professor named Ryan Burge who was fantastic. He just wrote a book called The Nuns. Yeah, we want to have him on. He sounds like a really he fascinating would, he guy. Would be great, really interesting. And he's also a Baptist pastor. Okay. So he has a rooting interest in this topic. And in fact, he says he got his PhD. He saw as a pastor, he saw the decline in religious participation and wanted to understand what that was about. And so he went to school to study that. Yes, yeah, so some of the resource material, reference material that you cite in the piece is definitely quantitative. Some is a little bit more qualitative, or at least the resources from the references of the references are certainly qualitative. I was wondering if you did come across folks that uh, at least theorized whether the politicization of many church communities um, or, or houses of worship as a reason for folks becoming disengaged. I know in our family, um, all three of my kids have uh, different levels of belief. Uh, mm -hmm. And they went to uh, hardcore Christian 
uh, school, a private school for, for the better part of 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, f uh, for the first 10 years after I became a Christian, it was a um, evangelical Baptist church. Uh, but once they started, once they all got to a certain age and started thinking independently, mm -hmm. um, they, it, it was, the community was more primarily defined by certain socio-political leanings than what they were actually reading in their Bible. And in all three right. cases, at the very least, it created a, uh, a level of hmm. um, maybe not cynicism, but hmm. uh, certainly skepticism about it. I was wondering if you came across anything like that as well. Definitely. I mean, it's true, especially with um, with sort of the, with the major um, evangelical churches, they've definitely sorted by politics. Um, I, I talked to somebody for actually for a different story who had um, actually was a was a Donald Trump supporter in 2016. And then over time, uh, drew away from Donald Trump, was unhappy about treatment of children at the border and just and disavowed Donald Trump and he had to switch to a different church because wow. the church he was at was so thoroughly pro-Trump. Um, and this is, I think for, for main, for, for large denominations, this is definitely the case. Hmm. Um, and I, I mentioned this in, in this article about people having to move to a different church for, to, to align with their politics. Um, I mean, it's tricky for churches because they're not allowed to overtly endorse candidates. I mean, that's a violation. That's a tax violation. They could get in trouble with the IRS for doing that. But we all know that churches can informally, they can have activism around issues, even if it isn't overtly around particular candidates. Um, and, and some churches, I, I have, um, you know, I know people who are very active in, in, a, in Unitarian churches. And their, their main, it strikes me that their main form of church activity is social activism. <laughs> um, that is that, and in fact, one of them, after she read my article, she wrote to me and she said, she, she, her big issue is climate change. And she said that uh, when, she, when she had a success on climate change, getting their member of Congress to sign on to a particular um, initiative, she said she felt the same kind of religious high that she gets from going to church. Wow. So that really draws. She's for her the church and uh, and politics really did um, merge at, at that moment. Um, so anyway, I guess that's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jess. I didn't tell you we're going to be inviting uh, the pastor of our church. Uh, he wrote a volume called "God Is Undocumented." Uh, so <laughs> he's pretty Boy. explicitly political, but in, in more of a <laughs> biblically sound way, I think. Um, okay. So anyway, sorry. That sounds but exciting. But, you know, you also talked about your children, and this is another really interesting point about this topic, which is that you get young people who were um, oftentimes raised in a particular faith tradition, which either going to church or going to synagogue or what have you, and then for a variety of reasons might um, pull away completely, become, even become an atheist. I know young people who were raised in a particular faith who are now atheists, and atheism yeah. And agnosticism is definitely on the rise, particularly among young people. And, and atheists are, are the most active, quote, religious group in the country. They're only 6% of the population, but they, I think the statistic is that about 28% um, annually are involved in some kind of political action. That's the highest of any, quote, wow. religious group. That's um, interesting. But, That's yeah. Nice but I think for young people, 
you also see um, a pulling away from um, from religion over LGBTQ issues, uh-huh. over treatment of women. I mean, one of the one of the moments in this and article, environment, it's in some and, cases, yes, too. And climate change. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the the trend in in the black church was just stunning to me that uh, young black people are moving away from church um, just as much as young white people are, you know, young adults. And I I only had literally two paragraphs about that in my story. I mean, that's just a huge topic. Uh, and as um, someone pointed out, Black Lives Matter did not spring from the black church in the way that the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s did. So we had, you know, obviously Martin Luther King was the, the iconic figure of the civil rights movement. And today you have Black Lives Matter, which doesn't, I mean, there are black pastors involved uh, in politics. You've got Senator Warnock from Georgia, <clears throat> who was the senior pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Um, you have the Reverend William Barber um, in North Carolina, very active in the racial justice movement, but you also have a very strong non-religious uh, black involvement. And that's, I, I think I'll probably follow up on that at some point. Well, I was going to bring that up. So maybe yeah. we'll have some fodder for your article here. Um, you you wrote about that particularly, quote, between 2008 and 2020, religious di- dis- disaffiliation among African-Americans soared from 17.7% to almost 35%. So really double, according to the Harvard study, which is which you quote pretty extensively throughout the article. Um, you know, at the risk of asking you to make some conclusions, I'm just wondering if you see any correlation between this trend and whether there would be a, a, a similar appetite for peaceful protest is, you know, one of the things that strikes me about Martin Luther King Jr.'s movement is that between um, the teachings of Gandhi and the teachings of the church, there was obviously a big focus on peaceful protest and sort of being forced into um, a violent posture. Whereas um, I don't know if you can make that same argument about some of the other protests that have taken place. And I don't know if there's a if there's a, a religious piece in there that sort of speaks to motivation. But do you have any insights or uh, questions even about what where it takes the, mm-hmm. the black activist movement with respect to BLM and other sort of racial activism um, movements mm-hmm. in, in that re- respect? Yeah. So I I, I don't want to. Um, speak without having done my research on this. I I know there there are religious black religious people who are very involved in BLM. Um, I mean, even uh, something as simple as during the protests of last summer, if, if the church is located on the way to a protest site or or at a protest site, people sitting outside the church giving out water, giving out food, uh-huh. you know, supporting the protesters. Um, supporting um, uh, nonviolent protests for sure. That there's, you know, that is for sure an important element of what has happened with the the, the movement for racial justice. But then there is a component that that is not based in religion. I think we just have to say BLM in, in and of itself, not right. not its right. BLM itself is a Marxist movement. Its yeah. underpinnings are, but there are certainly people who subscribe to the cause that yes. are, would not be described that way. Exactly. No, BLM does self-identify as Marxist and Marxists generally don't believe in God. 
Anyway, I don't know if that's completely true. I mean, some people might view themselves as Marxist for economic reasons, and then they yeah, might have a true. spiritual side to them. I mean, one of the things I didn't even get to in my article was people who identify as spiritual, but not religious, mm. which is a, a phrase that has been around for decades um, and is a growing people increasingly self-identify that way that they don't that somehow religion for some people has a negative connotation that you're somehow a sheep if you follow yeah. religion i mean remember barack obama when he was running for president the first clinging time, to your religion and guns right? to your religion and yeah. guns and we know how he feels about guns and it was not a flattering right he was it was i don't think he was meaning to be flattering toward religion when he said that so it, it's you know well i mean i don't even identify as a religious person i don't describe myself that way because i do think i mean wouldn't you say so core there's like even in certain parts of churches there's a hesitancy mm -hmm. to identify as as, as a religious person, because it's associated with rules and rule following and just mm -hmm. that and, and sort of letter of the law and not spirit of the law. Mm -hmm. um, and can for be, me anyway. Yeah. And can be, and can be a, a associated with intolerance. Sure. Um, so it, it cuts both ways. And I think sometimes if a person identifies as religious, they have to kind of explain themselves and maybe be reassuring that they're not intolerant or that they're not proselytizing. I think some people are afraid of religious people who whose faith wants them to convert people to that faith. Yeah, I think that a lot of that aversion comes from the connotations that have been assigned to the word religion. There's something that when I get past the rhetoric about it is uh, deeply meaningful to me um, as a kid. Uh, I remember the first words of the invitation to my bar mitzvah were as my father and grandfather before me, mm -hmm. the, that, you know, indicating that I was connected to a history and a people, you know, mm -hmm. and there are certain aspects of rituals that um, are very, very meaningful that as I take as a Christian now, as I take this bread and I take this wine, that I'm connecting to a practice that's been happening for now thousands of years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I wonder about, I'm a little torn about some of the movements that we see, while on the one hand, I'm very, very encouraged about the need to move um, social justice forward. Uh, there are great ills in our culture that we need to address as, as a, a culture. And yet, a lot of the prevailing thought and prevailing um, dispositions even don't necessarily have a transcendent philosophical mooring. You know, mm. uh, I, I want to know, for example, um, just generally, like, what are the mores here? Mm. And I'm I'm afraid that the mores are dictated by, um, you know, somebody who has enough followers on Twitter. What they're, uh, <laughs> you know, how they feel that day. <laughs> you know, that somehow doesn't seem as um, authoritative or, or deeply rooted mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, stuff that's been mm -hmm. test that's tried the test of time, you know? Yeah. yeah. No. And that's where, where I think politics and yeah. And sort of the everyday activism or even just, you know, posting ideas on Twitter where that just, uh, they just can't, that's can't be religion. I mean, as I think Ryan Burge had a comment that, you know, politics, here's what he said, politics doesn't have the legs that religion does, which carries you through all parts of your life. 
Mm. That there's yeah. something that cradle the grave kind of. Yeah, yeah. that it's that it that it is that it's the transcendent aspect of religion that I think politics can't possibly um, supplant. So so being the the Jew that I am, I'm still a Jew <laughs> even though I'm a Christian. I'm going to argue exactly the other side of the point that I was Excellent. just making. <laughs> um, so in your piece, you say all the Christian imagery and objects present present at the Capitol insurrection suggested another cultural trend. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll read the rest of that paragraph. But, it, you know, what occurs to me is that for some of these, some of the most awful moments and some of the most awful events that have happened, uh, have happened with a justification and symbols where religious symbols have been hijacked by things that are really irreligious, if you will. You say um, crosses, Christian flags, Bibles, and signs equating President Trump and Jesus, along with the president presence of Confederate flags and anti-Semitic slogans exposed yeah. to the quote-unquote comfortable just juxtaposition of Christian and white nationalist imagery. This is um, quoting Robert P. Jones, the CEO of Public Religion Research Institute. So I'm curious if either in your other research or for any of us um, in our own Bible studies or churches, what sense you got from others in your church or, or others that you spoke to, how did they feel about the use of Christian symbols and the name of Christ being invoked on the floors of Congress? Uh, you're talking about just January 6th in particular? Yeah, in particular. Yeah. Or, or you can look earlier in um, 2020, uh, President Trump uh, clearing forcibly having uh Clearing your, Lafayette Square with with tear gas to, to go hold up a Bible in front your of your classmate, your yeah. um, the fellow from your hometown, clearing right, Lafayette Square. Right. Yeah. No, I mean the, this use of uh, religious objects and and imagery is um, just to some people very disturbing. I know um, Dr. Jones, Robert P. Jones at PRI, is quite upset about it. He wrote a whole book about this called "White Too Long." He is himself from Mississippi, uh, a man of faith, and is appalled by what he sees as sort of Christian, white Christian nationalism springing up. Um, and you see, you know, some, the imagery is just so important. I mean, you can say, well, it's just, okay, so they just carry this stuff with them, big deal. But um, it's like, you know, Confederate flags have taken on this whole meaning beyond just, uh, you know, related to the South and slavery. I mean, you, now you see Confederate flags all over the place in parts of the country that weren't at all involved. Yeah. In, in, and it's just you know, a giant middle finger to people who look rural, In rural New York, upstate New York, you'll see people flying Confederate flags. Yeah. And it's, New um, Jersey. Yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of creepy. Um, and it's people making a statement. So, you know, symbols really do matter. I mean, it's interesting um, how, uh, I didn't talk about this in my article, but you you get these um, people will alter American flags. You get different versions of the American flag. So on on the one hand, the American flag is seen as sacred um, in our American um, civic religion, but then at the same time, you get flags that have been altered uh, to have particular meanings. Um, and I can't even get give you any specifics on this, but so it's well, I can give you an illustration of of okay. that. Um, Daniel, I, so I'm in the, I read through the Bible and I'm, I'm in Daniel right now. Daniel three is a really, it's a quagmire of a chapter for me. Um, but as I was reading it this time, 
it reminded me of something that's happened here in recent years in the United States. The, the chapter is about um, three Israelites uh, plus Daniel. So Daniel with his friends, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm-hmm. And they refused to observe this um, national act of uh, worship and respect in front of a symbol of, of the nation, you know, this mm-hmm. um, deified almost symbol, if not fully mm-hmm. deified symbol of the nation. In this case, it was this huge golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. I think we've, many of us have vested uh, certain symbols of the United States with this, you know, religious significance, the flag and its sanctity. And when there were football players who chose not to observe a particular act, we can call it an act of worship or just a, a ritual, you know, a, a national ritual, they, they weren't quite thrown into a fiery pit but mm-hmm. uh, boy, oh boy, uh, if Donald Trump yeah. had his druthers, I think he, he might have chosen to do so. Well, it is, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. And, it, um, you know, Jessica, when I wrote an article within Donald Trump's first year in office, and I interviewed a bunch of the foreign correspondents at the White House mm. to get their take. And one of them just was struck by how much Americans worship their flag, worship the American flag in a yeah. way that say Europeans don't worship their national flags. Um, and I, I had just, he thought it was really strange and, mm. and kind of um, unpleasant in some ways, how, you know, when, you know, when our, when our national anthem comes on, how we all are, you know, very solemn and some people put their hand on their heart. And I just thought, well, it, I just never occurred to me that other people in other countries just aren't like that. Um, but Americans, we really do have a, have a civic religion around the flag and the founding, um, the founding fathers, the founding documents. And this is, you know, and the atheists. But I think, but I, you know, I mean, part of what I think not, not to, you know, defend the, (laughs) defend it, but, but I think one of the reasons is, is we're really built on an idea. We're not built on a national or a culture, a cultural sense of identity. We didn't have philosophers, we had founders. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the, the, the French, for example, that's who I have a lot of experience with. They, they, they don't worship the flag, although it's the tricolor, you know, they, they worship their, they, they revere rather than worship their philosophers and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Camus and, and, um, and, the, and the like, and, and some of their uh, political philosophers too, but, you know, and certainly the Chinese uh, uh, revere and, I, and the Russians revere their flag and then stand for their anthem and things. Um, but yeah, it, it is, it's interesting um, my mother was a teacher in the Mennonite school system for a very oh. long time. Oh. Of course, they're pacifists and they would they argue that they are not citizens of any country, but mm-hmm. they are citizens of the world. And so after September 11th, well, first of all, they never pledge a flag in a school. Um, mm-hmm. And after September 11th, they're all pacifists. So they didn't like that there was, you know, there was flags everywhere and there was a, a national push and a national conversation. And almost, you know, you really... At that time, you weren't ready to say that was a bad idea to go to Afghanistan because we felt so attacked and so vulnerable that, you know, it just a lot of citizens were just like, yeah, let's go get them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but but being in that context as as a non Mennonite was very hard for her because oh. I just remember her talking about being at conferences that were um, talking about the, you know, the government decisions that that uh, they didn't agree with and. Mm-hmm. 
So there's a lot of dissonance. I guess the the um, that's an interesting observation about the civic religion. But of course, Europeans are so non-religious. There's yeah, I think that's part. They just don't go to church. I mean, you know, the Notre Dame is this incredible building. It's a church, but and it's revered. And when it burned, it was just tr- profoundly traumatic for the French people and for the world. But you know, what percentage of French people actually go to church every week? Not that many. Yeah. One of the things that that we talk about um, and that I'm fascinated by is, is religion in our politics and how much mm-hmm. of an intertwining there is. Um, and, and you must have had some concept of that as you wrote this article, Linda. Um, but yet you do refuse to connect the decrease of religious belief in the country with the increase in political polarization. And I think you gave some reasons for that. But one thing you said was this concept of the God-sized whole. And I just keep coming back to that because I do think there, it, it make the argument that there is something in all of us that wants to be connected to something bigger, something mm-hmm. more holy or righteous, if you will, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a cause or a being. Mm-hmm. I think there is an innate, there is an innate part of, of humanity that, that wants that. And, and these, while, while, um, Burgess makes the argument that religion won't, you know, isn't some, or excuse me, politics isn't what you're going to talk about at a birth or a death. Basically, it's not going to carry you in a transcendent nature through hard times. Mm -hmm. There is, there is a high there and there is a connection there Mm -hmm. to, to, uh, righting wrongs, to winning, um, winning races, to the, the sort of competition. What, what are your thoughts on, on why America in particular is such a, or has traditionally been so motivated religiously in in its politics? I mean, America was founded as a religious refuge, right? I mean, religion is is in our founding and it's in our constitution, the freedom of of religion and the freedom from religion, right? So you can't, we don't have a state religion. Um, I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm not a religious historian at all. I know that some, some individual states did have religious identities. Some were, were Catholic, I know. So America has a, that religion is very much a founding of this country. And, but, but it's, very, it's a very protected and sort of cabined off from, from the hand of government, which is important. So, you know, in Europe, I, my understanding is that the government was much more tied to the church directly. And that kind of wrecked it in some ways, I think, um, that it's really better for church, for for religious institutions to be um, protected from the government and vice versa. But in in terms of sort of, uh, you know, religion as as, and its role in politics, I mean, it really is, um, this is how I came into this topic as a reporter was um, covering the so-called religious right or Christian conservatives. I mean, back in the day, um, you know, the, the fight against abortion, I've written about that, that battle for decades and now it's come roaring back with the Supreme Court taking that case. Right. But, you know, you had, I mean, it used to be that evangelical churches steered clear of politics completely. That was seen as not their, not their purview, that they're, they're all about um, practicing their faith and, and avoiding getting involved in politics. And over time, that changed. Now, I talked to Tony Perkins, who is a um, family uh, research council, right? Family research council. I've known Tony for decades. 
Um, you know, he and Gary Bauer have been leaders of the so-called um, religious right for a long time, um, more mainstream. Tony did not support what happened on January 6th. And he, you know, he wanted to uh, make very clear the, the distinction between the people who would illegally break into the U.S. Capitol and uh, with apparent intent to do terrible things to people. I mean, you know, crying out for where's Nancy Pelosi, where's Mike Pence? Lord knows what they would have done if if they'd yeah. found them. Um, you know, that's not what your your kind of mainstream, you know, evangelical Christian activists are about, really. January 6th was really a fringe activity. You know, there was a lot of QAnon um, activism there. And some people view QAnon as a kind of almost a quasi-religious cult in mm-hmm. the way that people believe. Well, there's it. a messianic figure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you, you raised January 6th and we kind of keep coming back to that because you, you also start the piece with a character mm-hmm. whose experience of January 6th is very different than the, the video that we've seen. You know, she, she acknowledges that there, there was, there were horrible and violent things that happened there, mm-hmm. but it just, it, the, the way that you handled her story, I really felt showed a lot of respect that we don't see, first of all, we don't see that perspective talked about very often about that there were people there. And I I understand there were four different groups, some of whom were just there to pray uh, at the Capitol, that uh, you you really treated her with respect and humanity. And I I found that kind of shockingly unbiased and shockingly (laughs) human, um, because it's so that 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 day and and its meaning in our in our American psyche is just so charged. How, How difficult was it to treat her with that sort of respect and to, to kind of take her narrative seriously as being legitimate when when we did see so many narratives that that weren't peaceful that right, day. Right, exactly. No, I mean, I um, I talked to her. I found her through, through somebody who themselves believes the QAnon conspiracy theory. My And in arranging that conversation with the woman I called Mandy, I... I gave her my solemn vow that I would not reveal who she was and that I would res- you know, respect her right to believe whatever she wants to believe and, and that she would feel heard. You know, I didn't, I, I think everybody deserves that sort of level of human uh, decency. And I, what I, so in, in telling and allowing her to, to say what she believed and what she says she saw, I did have one reader, a friend of mine, who um, was upset that I let her say that without pushing back really hard. Yeah, um, because she called it the most patriotic day of her life. Of life. That's that's an extraordinary statement. Well, it is, and it was, you know, she's somebody who, in her, just I just let her talk, and her talking about her participation in that day struck me as quasi-religious, not that she had some kind of ecstatic experience, but that she was there as it was, as I called it, a a moment of secular communion. She was with like-minded people, which is what going to church is about, that you, there's sort of this unspoken um, packed almost with the people who are with you that you all love each other and care about each other and all want the same thing and 
I, I'm just letting her have that. I mean, she participated in something that that a whole lot of people think was profoundly wrong. But she said to me that she, you know, when she entered the Capitol, the door was wide open. The Capitol Police officer welcomed her. She said, if somebody had told me not to go in, I would absolutely not have gone in there. So when she saw the the reporting of what other people said happened that day, she was really shocked. Huh. She just didn't know. I mean, it's like being at any event, you 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 see what you see, and that's that's your truth, that's your reality. Yeah. And she didn't say she says, Yeah, I saw the videos of what of what happened on January 6th. And she's like, that's not what I saw. That wasn't my experience. So yeah. I mean, who knows? She maybe she was making it all up. She sounded completely genuine to me. I, I didn't meet with her in person. I talked to her on the phone. So it is what it is. I mean, there's a lot of people who thought they were doing good by going to the Capitol on by going to hear Donald Trump speak on January 6th and then marching to the Capitol. Yeah. And what they felt was stopping the steal. That's these are people who believe that. And I, you know, it wasn't my place to try to talk her out of that. Or to, or to, to well, I think it's important for yeah. people to, to 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 read that that's that perspective is out there, and, right? And it and she's not the only one, I suspect, that has it. There's a lot of people who feel that way. A lot of a lot of Republicans who feel that Donald Trump was the rightful winner of the election and that the election was stolen, and no amount of badgering and pushing back and and saying nasty things to somebody is going to change their mind. Yeah, I heard Bill Cassidy say that there are ways to talk to your friends and your family mm -hmm. that believe the big lie, as it's being referred to, that are more productive. You know, and there's a few things to to keep in mind. Number one, some folks are just not going to be moved. There's such a narrative and a construct around their ability or willingness to see, you know, facts for what they are. Um, but uh, two two points uh, that that uh, Senator Cassidy made was one, um, <laughs> when it, it, that he found to be effective in talking to some of his more ardent Trump supporting constituents, family and friends. One is you know when um, Rudy Giuliani was on was under oath, he admitted that there was no fraud that it, yeah. <laughs> that there wasn't anything you know, that they could pursue. That's when he you know and then he went out in front of the cameras and said you know stop the steal. Um, the other one was um, Lynn with a not Lynn um, Sydney Powell. Sydney Powell, thank you. Same thing when, when she was under oath and had to actually uh, testify. She said, "Well, no reasonable person would actually believe this stuff," <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. um, but that—that's. I, I thought it was a really good point that there's. I think his overall point. He used a couple of of these facts of, of folks that are heroes of this particular uh, movement, if you want to call it, stop the steal. But his overall point was, listen. You know, folks that uh, tend to be more liberal, progressive Democrats um, may think one way. Folks that tend to be more conservative or in particular Trump supporting conservatives may think another way. Part of what's going to help us speak the same language is actually by listening to each other. Right. You know, and and continuing to beat each other over the head, whether it's rhetorically beating each mm -hmm. other over the head or actually beating each other over the head, that's going to be less effective. It's only going to raise the, the temperature, you know? Some of the endeavors that you're involved with are really encouraging for that very reason, because it creates environments for folks from very different perspectives to 
um, be heard and to listen to each other, to actively listen to each other. So, yeah. yeah let me bring up the, the respect project, which the Christian science monitor, I think has just recently mm-hmm. launched. This is an effort to, to write a series of articles that encourage respect. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the project, what, what you know about it, how long it's going to go on, uh, how it serves a, a purpose for sort of, I mean, it, it, it seems to me it, from what you've described the mission to be at the Monitor that it's very much in line with that. Right, exactly. I mean, news the news business is largely focused on negativity. A lot of it is, right? Bad news, plane crashes, um, you know, pandemic, economic strife. I mean, people suffering. That usually, mm-hmm. you know, the, the if it bleeds, it leads, right? Yeah. Um, and at the monitor, we try to uh, look at things a little bit differently. Look at look at efforts to to solve problems. Uh, there's a lot of people out there trying to do good, and trying to bridge divides. Um, whether it's in the Middle East or in, uh, you know, on a, a Canadian TV show that called the political blind date, which I love, where you just get people on opposite sides of the political aisle who discover that they do have a lot in common and can can feel empathy toward each other. That was one of the articles. Uh, so this is just it's sort of showing the way for people at a time of great division, especially. Uh, there are forces that have exacerbated these divisions. I think yeah. social media, there's a lot of great stuff about social media. I mean, I can post my articles and Jessica Stone can see that I wrote this big giant story about is <laughs> politics the new, re- the new religion? And here I am. So <laughs> I, I love, you know, I love Facebook in some ways. And then in other ways, social, you know, Twitter can be just awful or, uh, yeah. you know, people saying terrible things and, or people, I mean, it's just way too easy to go on these, uh, these platforms and just start mouthing off. And then next thing you know, you've been fired. Uh, <laughs> so, but that's, you know, so at the monitor, we're trying to kind of, they call it get, you know, show the humanity behind the headlines and not just dwell on the negative and not make people feel drained and hopeless, but kind of show the way for uh, you know constructive efforts to to solve problems basically and it might at this point people are have been so much at each other's throats that even just getting people to sit down and have a civil conversation can be a victory yeah yeah so another one of the articles in that series was two janets from two different sides of the country (laughs) one red janet one blue janet and um yeah, I didn't get to finish it yet, but I mean, it's, uh, I think that project, especially for people that like to listen to our podcast, it's, it's definitely something you want to look into and subscribe to because there's just a lot of good storytelling there. And, uh, and, and <laughs> Linda didn't tell me to say any of this, but I, I really felt like I responded to the message. Maybe that's, yeah. that sh- I should have, <laughs> this is my, my jam too, but, um, I, I think it's worth uh, everybody giving it a, a closer look and, and, um, subscribing so that you can get access to those articles. How long is that project? Do you have any idea how long that's going to go on, Linda? I think they've, I should know this. I think the six articles in the series have already gone up and they did a a big um, web event recently, uh, which is available online. If you go to the respect project page at csmonitor.com, you can, there's a permanent link to that web event. And I think they had about, about a thousand people were, were watching. Oh, wow on the web. 
Yes, it wasn't a, it wasn't an in-person event. It was on the web, but yeah, um, no, I, I started listening to it and um, really remarkable in terms of it's it, the, the people they pulled in from around the world and the things right. that they're seeing, which is another quasi parallel here. When mm -hmm. I wrote crossing the divide, I didn't ever foresee a time where our, I, for whatever reason, I was thinking crossing international divides, not crossing mm -hmm. divides within our own country. And, and mm -hmm. it, it was published in March, but some people knew I was writing it. And I started getting, getting approached right after January 6th to just talk about it sort of being the same skill set. And that sort of comes back to your toolkit that you, you started as a, a reporter in, in Moscow. And I just think, you know, that sort of does take a little bit of a outside broad lens sometimes mm -hmm. to find some of the most simple answers with respect to this, not to get so far into the political weeds of, mm -hmm. that, of the things that divide us to not be able to see all the things that are the same. Yeah, no, it's true. And, um, you know, another thing I've been involved in is something called the Dartmouth Conference, which is I don't do that. That's I sort of do that as a as me. I'm not doing that as a you know as the Linda Feldman, as, you know the <laughs> White House correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. Um, so I participate on their ground rules, uh, Chatham House rules. So if I want to, I've written a bunch of articles about it because it's just super interesting. And the, the whole idea it's it's track two diplomacy. So it's a lot of it's retired diplomats, it's retired um, politicians, it's academics, uh, retired ambassadors, brainstorming the very, very serious issues in US-Russian relations mm. and brainstorming solutions and then presenting them to the respective governments. And um, I mean, one of the concerns is over nuclear weapons. Okay. And the as the last time we met, which was in, um, December of 2019, the New START Treaty, which was the last remaining arms control agreement, was the clock was ticking. Uh, that would have expired in February of this year if um, President Biden and President Putin hadn't agreed to extend for five years. So the idea was that you could just extend it, just sign it and extend it without mm -hmm. changing anything. And the Dartmouth Conference felt very strongly that that was a, a positive step to take that strategic stability is incredibly important in US-Russian relations. And I will say, and I just draw this, this connection, but with the Russians, I've spent a lot of time in Russia over the years, starting in 1980, I was a student over there. The Russians, almost more than anything else, want respect. They want us to respect their humanity, their history, their culture, and almost, more than anything right now is the losses that they suffered in World War II. I mean, a lot of American soldiers died in World War II, but we weren't fighting World War II on our soil. Yeah. They were, they, millions and millions of people died over there. And Americans, now we, you know, World War II, we're, you know, the, the veterans are quickly leaving us yeah. as they, you know, move through their 90s if they haven't already passed away. Um, but over there, I mean, whenever you're there on any kind of um, anniversary day so celebrating World War II, the victories, it's so it's so powerful for them. Even, you know, people my age who weren't alive during World War II, it's part of their family culture in a way that it just isn't here. And so understanding, you know, their concerns about their uh, their borders, their boundaries, their, um, you know, 
Russian identity, they're so proud of their identity. And so when, you know, when the United States, when the Soviet Union fell apart, that was a moment of great humiliation for them. And just to understand that, I think goes a long way toward, um, you don't have to agree with everything they say, but if you just listen to them and understand what they're saying, it goes a long way toward, you know, reaching some kind of, you know, ability to live together and occupy the planet together. I have to just point out there's a lot of parallels between that and what the and, and the Chinese as well because that's something I learned about you know Americans don't learn about the losses that the Russians and the Chinese suffered we we were yeah. actually on the same side of that war and then went on to make peace with the Japanese and all you know people just don't really realize how many yeah. people gave their lives for that win that we we really don't have strong relationships with anymore as as we're not allies exactly it's really remarkable to your point and to tie some of these strings together, uh, as you mentioned, you have written numerous stories over the years about your contributions to the Dartmouth Conference. Uh, in a 2017 piece, you kicked the piece off by saying, US-Russia ties may be at their worst in decades, but a meeting of citizen diplomats, I love that phrase, a meeting of citizen dip diplomats from both countries highlighted the value of face-to-face -face conversations and listening. So one last question and a couple pieces of business. I'm curious if you think something like this is more difficult with US and Rus Russian citizens or between Trump and non-Trump or conservative in the, you know, here domestically. I think it's harder with Trump, the pro-Trump versus anti-Trump crowd. I mean, there's, so there, there are parallels. I mean, there's an effort, there is an effort to demonize and dehumanize the, uh, the quote other side Mm -hmm. um, to call them the enemy, to, you know, wish, wish the other side ill, to think, think yeah. the worst of them, to think they're stupid and that they're just out to get you. And it's a, it's a, it's a really toxic mindset that just does leads and it just leads to no good. So, it, you know, I'm hopeful that as this pandemic as we move out the other side of the pandemic and we resume some kind of version of normal life that people can calm down a little bit and get to know each other as people again and be uh, civil and just recognize that people have the right to believe whatever they wanna believe, whether it's political or religious. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hopeful too. And I think there are some remedies that are are coming into being. Uh, it's not a coincidence. There are projects that, uh, th there are numerous projects across the country that are attempting to, number one, um, diagnose a lot of the uh, societal ills, um, as well as introduce some prescriptions for them. And I think uh, of the Dartmouth Conference and some of the other endeavors that we discussed today are part of that is acknowledging um, and and uh, diagnosing what some of the problems are, introducing some prescriptions, some of what we talked about today, simply talking to your neighbors, you know, mm -hmm. because there's a human being, you know, my, uh, my neighbor that I see, we see each other on our walk every morning, Pete Pietro, he's originally from Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, I went over for dinner one night and you know, Fox News and Trump was all over the place. But <laughs> to me, he's just Pete, like we probably vote very differently. Um, mm -hmm. Although I, I don't know, I tend to vote conservative, but I'm just not a big Trump fan, as you could probably tell. 
but um, he's just he's just uh, Pierino. He's like he's my 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 pal. He's a human being, and and his mm -hmm. wife is is wonderful. And you know, so we can fall very differently on the you know the different Trump side of the spectrum. But uh, mm -hmm. he's still my buddy, and uh, Bella, his dog, is is a friendly dog, and so we mm -hmm. humanize each other. And then um, creating these these forums you know, like the Dartmouth conference for people to come together or, um, you know, what, what Jessica referred to, um, the, the respect project or the, the Franklin project. Anyway, I, that, that's a whole other series of podcasts, let alone uh, for this, this conversation. <laughs> Did you have any questions for us? So I wondered if your the subject of your podcast is so specific, if you have a hard time getting guests, but I'm going to guess not. I'm going to guess that it, it's such a rich subject matter that you can pretty much dig it out of anybody. But I'm, I'm curious if you have a hard time getting people to talk about it. And I ask, I ask you that because I actually did have a hard time getting people to talk about their personal take on politics as a, potentially as a form of religion. Some people absolutely did not want to talk about it. Well, we entered into it. I, I don't know what your experience is yet, Jess, but uh, I've been doing it now for about six months. And uh, we went into it specifically for that reason. Well, you're not supposed to talk about politics. You're not supposed to talk about religion. No, no, no. We are supposed to talk about it. And we're, we, we're under that impression because a lot of the screamers have taken up space in, in, the, in the public square. Well, mm -hmm. I want to take some of that space back, you know, and listen, sometimes we'll get someone on that wants to stick to the politics lane. And sometimes we'll get somebody on that wants to stick to the religion lane or the theology lane. And that's fine. We'll respect that. And oftentimes we've, you know, the intersection is the most fun for me and most fruitful for oh, me. Yeah. Um, I think we just have to yeah. reclaim some of that space. I've never understood why we don't talk about these two. What, you know, when we refer to the third rails of politics, why are they, this, this, why is religion the third rail of politics? It's, it shouldn't be the third rail of anything. Like it, it shouldn't have been taken out of diplomacy. Like I'm very passionate about bringing it back into diplomacy as, as a way to connect with people across cultures. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just, uh, you know, we missed 9-11 in a large part because we didn't understand the radicalization going on in mosques. Now we could be missing domestic extremism if we're not more careful about watching the radicalization that's happening in today's evangelical churches. And I don't want to miss that. And I don't want anybody that listens to miss that because this is our country. We should, you know, we're going to have to go about it, investigating it differently than investigating another country. But, but man, you can't just discount it. We, we've got, we, you know, we were talking to Elizabeth Newman um, yeah. and she that's just has her finger on this fascinating intersection about, what's going on and, and trying to be part of the solution to point it out as, as a person of faith herself. So, you know, I, you have a certain, yeah, it's just, it's a very, it's a very rich lane. And, you know, as, as, as you know, until you read my book, you didn't know my whole story, Linda, but I do think that having the ability to talk or not talk about it, but not just be afraid to talk about it or be uncertain how to talk about it, it makes you it makes you a, a better at asking questions and understanding people. It's it's fundamental to our humanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that really there's a lot that helped me and my dad's conversations uh, turn down the heat a little bit on me and my dad's conversations. And one of them was when I became comfortable saying, you know, that's a really great question, and I don't know, can I get back to you on that? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, and and we've 
been in this 20 plus year dialogue uh, after I became a Christian, as you can imagine, it was um, a traumatic experience for both of us. Mm. Um, and it just sparked this conversation that was at first, thank God there was a conversation at all. At, at first it looked like there wasn't yeah. going to be. Mm. Uh, but yeah, one of those things was, you know, I, I don't know. I, I got to think about that. I got to read about that. I, you know, um, and then we circled back around about it over, uh, over a whiskey around a fire pit, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> that's, we need more of that. We need exactly more of that. You down to the whiskey in the fire pit. <laughs> fire pits were definitely became a thing during the pandemic, right? Everybody hanging out outside because that couldn't hang out inside. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we've had. I, I mean, I I got to know. I'm sure you did too. Your neighbors or the people in your community on a new level and had some of those same conversations. You know, you it's it's really it's it's really important. So, yeah. Yeah. any other questions for us? Miss investigator. <laughs> I know. I mean, I think you guys are, you guys are great. I don't, I can't think of anything. I, um, and I, I can now see that you probably have an infinite quantity of people you could talk to. Well, let us know if there's anybody we should talk to that you're talking to. Cause I, I'm definitely plumbing your articles for yeah. some Okay, sure. No, I, I some good I voices can, in there. Yeah, no, I, I can, I can give you some ideas. I mean, I think the, the whole Jewish thing is interesting just because being Jew, Jewish, Judaism is a faith, but it's also an ethnicity. And I don't, I haven't, I mean, I've always been aware of that, but I'm still kind of trying to understand how that works. I mean, how- Some people that, would argue that point actually, and especially when you change your faith, like, like Corey did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to fight to be marked still part of the ethnicity when you change your religion within mm -hmm. Jewish culture. Yeah, no, I've had folks be pretty obnoxious about it at times. Like, you're not a Jew, you you accept Jesus. I'm like, eh, I'm still. Uh, this is a really well, blunt he, way to put Jesus it, but was I'm Jewish. What's that? Yep, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was right? Jewish. It, you know, the the more blunt way of putting it is, it, God forbid, a, a Hitler came back. I'm still Jewish enough to kill. So, yeah, that's usually <laughs> what I say too. I'm still very <laughs> <That's> terrible. <laughs> I'm still very plugged in every year we have our Seder, you know, the, the kids, I, you know, the kids are more drawn to Judaism because it's part of our family. It's part of our heritage. It's part of right. what brings us together. They, the Hanukkah candles and the, you know, my, the Purim carnival and the, you know, we weren't just those once a year Jews, you know, we were. But you still do, you still do all that? We still do a lot of it. I mean, oh, obviously not, not as much as when I was a kid and we kept kosher and we did, you know, we were the, the whole, the whole, uh, God's Megillah, if you will. But um, no, my kids, especially with my parents being out here, uh, they're, they're here for six months out of the year. And when they're here, especially those holidays, that's why I say Purim and Passover. And sometimes you go over Shabbos. Um, so they're, they're, yeah, we still, because again, it's something that it, it's really a rich experience because uh, we, we, just, we just had a, a Zoom family reunion. Mm -hmm. uh, there were about 50 or 60 people on it. Uh, because March 3rd was the 100-year anniversary of when the boat arrived at Ellis Island of, of our, my grandmother was on the boat and her parents and grandparents were on the boat. Um, and uh, it, just knowing that my grandmother and my great-grandmother, who I was named after, and her parents, who I now know a lot more about, were doing those same things on Friday night. Mm -hmm. There's something yeah. that really connects me to to the Nathans and the Blicks and the, you know, knowing yes. the language and Cherny, more about Cherny Ostrov uh, mm -hmm. near the Black Sea. So anyway, sorry. That's it. Like I said, I, I tend to go off on these rabbit trails. <laughs> 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 well, 
No, but I mean, we, I was raised with the, with the prominent Jewish holidays, not the high holy days. And we do Passover and Hanukkah with our kids because mm-hmm. there is a sense of, you know, at the end of the, the Seder, you say next year in Jerusalem. And there mm-hmm. is just something so complete about understanding that you're doing that and every Jewish person around the world is doing that yeah. at the same, not at the same time, but the same day. It connects you. Um, I have really, family in really Israel cool. and I knew that they were making Shabbos when we were making Shabbos or making Passover when we, there yeah. is something that connects us very uh, viscerally mm-hmm. and uh, in a tactile way. So how can we find you? How can we find your work and how can we find you on social oh, well. and all that good stuff? So I, uh, my articles are at, in the Christian Science Monitor, which is csmonitor.com. I'm on Twitter. It's Linda underscore Feldman, and Feldman has two N's. Um, I'm not a big tweeter. I Twitter kind of scares me. I always I compose my tweet and then I stare at it for a while and then I either delete it or push them. Um, more comfortable on Facebook, but yeah, I'm in. I'm here in Washington. Um, People of goodwill um, are welcome to reach out to me and ask me questions or give me story ideas. Give me, give me hot tips. Terrific. <laughs> Especially the hot tips. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I, I might be taking you up on that. I'm overdue for a trip to DC. Uh, yeah, I promised definitely. Jessica I'd be taking her and her hubby out to dinner. Uh, and nice. maybe you'll, you'll come along and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick you're up the have conversation. A Pied Piper trail core. By the time you get out here, you're going to have a lot of friends. might need a monitor breakfast we might need a moderator yeah (laughs) that'd be fun that'd be a lot of fun well linda feldman it was such a joy to hang out with you for a bit here um, and dive a little bit deeper into that great story and more about your own background and i hope this isn't the last time that we get to hang out yeah no this is great thank you so much i enjoyed it all right see, see you jess have a great weekend thanks thank you for joining us today if you appreciate what you heard here please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.